Hello, everybody. Um, uh, I'm Paul Volberding and uh, happy to uh, moderate, uh, act as the matador for this, uh, for this uh, meeting. Um, we have uh, Friday afternoon, kind of late for some people, I'm, I'm pretty sure, on, especially on the East Coast. Uh, but uh, I think this will be a, a fascinating discussion. We have um, decided to make the focus of this really um, a lot to do with the, uh, with the vaccine, which has been obviously a, a huge uh, topic in the, you know, for months, but I think every day there's, there's something new. And we have several uh, discussions to, to help walk us uh, through this. And uh, we, we hope to have a, an, a lively discussion, but also to get a chance to, for, the, for the audience to kind of weigh in and share your thoughts and, and ask your uh, questions. We have uh, three panelists today, three discussants. Um, I'll, I'll go from the top in the list that we have here. Uh, Carlos, uh, or Peter Chin Hong uh, from, from UCSF, Carlos Del Rio from Emory. Uh, in Atlanta, and uh, Bonnie Maldonado from, not from UCSF, but actually from Stanford University. Sorry about that. And um, maybe what I'll ask is in order just uh, to have them tell us a little bit about uh, themselves, uh, what your role is at your institution very briefly, uh, but then uh, spend a, a, you know, maybe a couple sentences on what your role has been and, and is now focused in terms of the COVID response. Um, I, I think of you all as being ID people with a long history of work with HIV. And, and by the way, Bonnie is not yet uh, joined us. Uh, we will plug her in as soon as uh, as soon as she makes the call. So um, Peter, why don't you start? Uh, so thanks, Paul. My name is Peter Chin Hong. I'm a professor of medicine and um, I'm in the Division of Infectious Diseases Department of Medicine. Um, my roles at UCSF uh, are three main ones. I, um, my latest uh, responsibility is as Associate Dean for Regional Campuses. So that means I help uh, uh, liaise between two campuses we have at Berkeley, UC Berkeley and at uh, UCSF Fresno. And we're building a third at uh, UC Merced. So that's keeping me plenty busy. And then the, this happened in the middle of the pandemic. So for the for COVID-19, you know, everything, you know, all hell broke loose, so to speak, uh, literally, metaphorically, physically. Uh, I was taking care of patients, uh, still taking care of a lot of COVID patients, um, where we were psyched for bringing a lot of the investigational drugs to UCSF, um, Remdesivir, ACT, all of these. Uh, so we had to mobilize. And then I think probably most um, uh, sort of extensive was helping the system, being part of many people who rallied to transform medical education to transform clinical services. And in the middle of all of that, uh, like all of us on, on this call and Carlos and Paul um, communicating about the pandemic because so much of 2020, and we can talk for hours about this, was um, you know, marked by conflicting information, uh, myths, um, misinformation, um, uh, a CDC that was not quite as, um, front and center as we're used to having. So I think we, we started by sharing information on social media just to take care of patients. And that spiraled into 
you know, having a voice uh, in the pandemic. And at the end, my last comment is, at the end of the day, you know, we always think in infectious disease and HIV and medicine that we're experts in one field. But I think what this pandemic taught us is that we're all experts compared to the general population and all of us can have a voice. Great, super. Um, Carlos, a little, little bit of background about you and what your role has been. Well, you know, I have been, uh, I'm an, an HIV clinician and investigator. I've been working on HIV since the beginning of the pandemic. And I'm going to wave at Bonnie, who's now joining us. Welcome, Bonnie. And <laughs> uh, Quick introductions. So go ahead, Carlos. And uh, I've done, I have had multiple roles here at Emory, but most recently, I, I'm the Associate Dean for Emory School of Medicine, Nana Grady, which is our, our city hospital, our you know, safety net hospital, and that's where I'm responsible for, you know, clinical educational research operations there. So, um, um, obviously, when when the pandemic hit, you know, it was it became sort of my role to be everything COVID. It was from the discussing what needed to be done, from ensuring. I think I made a priority to ensure the the, the safety of our healthcare workers. So, making sure that we have the PPE and all the necessary things. Uh, rounding regularly to, to talk to people and hear people communicate. And I started also uh, doing other things, communicating uh, uh, scientifically. Uh, you know, since the pandemic started, I've written uh, 10 viewpoints in, in JAMA. It's almost one, one every, other, every month, every other month. I've, uh, I've done a lot of- on CNN. I've, I've done a lot of uh, <laughs> uh, you know, appearances in CNN and other national and local media. And I've written op-eds for the Washington Post, New York Times, and local papers. And I've also done uh, a town halls. And in fact, today I had my 46th town hall of the of this, uh, this pandemic. And I think communication and information has been critical because as Peter says, um, the information is ever changing, right? This is something yeah. novel. And, and every day we say something different. At some point in time, we, you know, I was telling people not everybody needs boosters. Now I can tell you something very different. So I think as the as the as the information as the science evolves, our messages have to change. And, and I think that, that, that is part of our role. Right, we'll definitely get, I think that's gonna be an important part of our discussion. And, and Bonnie, Bonnie and I have uh, worked together on DSMBs and uh, uh, we're gonna talk something about that, but uh, Bonnie, welcome. And uh, another kind of illustrious figure in this, in this work. Tell us a little, little bit about what you've done and what you're doing now. Yeah, absolutely. And I apologize. Uh, we're actually having our Stanford uh, reunion weekend. So I was just giving a little TED talk to the group about the future of pandemics. And is that family. why you're wearing all red, Bonnie? <laughs> yes. <laughs> There's my Stanford stuff. Yes. And, 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 and by the way, on the title slide for the program, you were listed as being from UCSF. So I think we successfully <laughs> recruited you. So. Oh, good. Well, that's good to know. I'll let my dean know. So I'm uh, Yvonne, but I'm uh, my friends call me Bonnie Maldonado, and I'm an infectious disease epidemiologist. I trained here at Stanford Medical School. I went to Hopkins for my residency and fellowship in pediatrics and infectious diseases, and then I trained at CDC and um, as an epidemic intelligence service officer, and I actually spent my whole career up until today, I guess, at Stanford. So um, I'm a, a pediatric infectious disease vaccinologist. I work primarily in global child health. I've done a lot of work as well in uh, um, prevention of mother-to-child transmission of HIV in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, a lot of work on global polio eradication uh, and molecular epidemiology. 
And, and of course, any other card carrying ID person like me is involved with COVID. So I happen to just fight at this point, I'm the uh, chair of the Committee on Infectious Diseases for the American Academy of Pediatrics. So we write that red book back there. And um, so we have just been inundated, but um, I'm really grateful for that opportunity to be able to be involved with policymaking on behalf of children and families. I'm also working, as you heard, with uh, Paul on NIH DSMBs, and uh, I'm also a liaison to the ACIP, the uh, Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices for CDC. So quite involved. We have about 10 different trials, uh, vaccine, epidemiology, treatment studies, um, all of the above, like you heard Carlos talk about. And yes, uh, I, I absolutely believe the communication issue, and Peter as well, I see. We have all been uh, spokespersons because as we all know, misinformation is the most deadly virus of all. And we need to make sure we get the word out, the proper uh, source of information to as many people as possible. So thank you. Great, super. And uh, welcome to Stormy, my, uh, my companion here, uh, who's participated in many uh, Zoom, <laughs> Zoom meetings over the last couple of years. Um, so let's just jump into it. So, you know, we could go off in a billion different directions. I hope we do. And we're actually trying to schedule a follow-up, uh, one of these uh, uh, late in the week um, discussions coming up. Uh, but, and I, and I think one of the things I would really like everyone's input in is how we communicate and how, what lessons we've learned about communication, which has been such a challenge with, with this uh, pandemic. Uh, but but let's just jump into the into the vaccines. Obviously, the topic of the moment is um, is boosters. Um, no question. I mean, I, let's hope that every member of the audience has already been vaccinated. Probably not many people yet have gotten their boosters. And you know, I I, I see so much controversy of, about this. And, and even just today, I was listening to some of the news hour just now. Um, somebody jump in and say. Uh, you know, briefly, um, what the current thought is on, on who should be getting boosters and which ones they should be getting. And then we can kind of, uh, any one of you could do it, but Bonnie, why don't we start with you and just Well, you know, it does pay to sit through, you know, at least 20 hours of FDA and CDC calls around the data, because there's lots of data out there. Um, you know, so honestly, at this point, uh, right this minute, the boosters are not going to make a difference unless we get more people vaccinated. That's the number one point. And I think we all agree on that. However, what we wanna do is make sure that we don't lose ground and start waiting for waning immunity to kick in before we're boosted. So I think this is a good time before the holidays, while the R-naughts, the effective R-naughts are lower to start thinking about boosting people. And with the data now for people over 65 is very clear. So it's clear that there is waning. Um, it's a little bit tricky as to whether some of that may be due to Delta or not, uh, because those things happen simultaneously. But I do think the data around adults over 65 is very clear. We know that immunocompromised individuals are at risk no matter what. And so then the question really is around uh, immunocompromised, uh, people with underlying conditions and, uh, and others. And, and then there's the health equity perspective. So those are all the big, lumps of categories. Now, does the general population need a booster right now? Probably not at this moment, but realistically, and I'll let Peter and Carlos weigh in, logistically, do we wanna wait until 
we start seeing waning and start seeing that surge start popping up before we try to mobilize people. So I would say it's critical for people older than 65, those with underlying conditions to consider this. And our healthcare workforce needs to feel comfortable continuing to work. Oh, I've just gotten, uh, so let me just, let me just jump in so Carlos. So I've just gotten, let's say a J&J single shot uh, a boost. Um, Carlos, may, among other things you can talk to us about, uh, what do I want to do? Do I want to get a, another J&J? Do I want to get an mRNA? What's your, what's your current thinking on that? Well, you know, again, when we talk about communication, right, at some point in time, we said, you know, all vaccines are created equal, get the vaccine that you have more access to. I think increasingly the evidence is showing us that all vaccines are not created equal and they are different. And, and the FDA has very clearly said people over 65, people underlying conditions uh, that are younger than 65 should get boosters if they were vaccinated with an mRNA vaccine. But people uh, of any age, 18 and older, who got a J&J should get a booster. So clearly the coverage of I almost think like the J&J vaccine really is not a one-shot vaccine, it's a two-shot vaccine. And then the question comes, uh, and that's unfortunate because globally it would have been nice to have a one-shot vaccine. Now, one shot gives you some protection, but it's not great. So the question is, do I get booster? What do I do for my booster? So it's a little tricky. And that's where, again, the science has evolved, right? Now we have data from the mix and match data showing us very clearly that yes, you can get boosted with a J&J and you should get boosted Two, two months or later after your initial shot, but you can get a J&J, but you can also, can also get an mRNA shot. And if you get an mRNA shot, the mix and match study suggests that you get a much better immune response with no higher incidence of side effects. Now, don't let's not go from, oh, a better immune response is better protection. We, we still don't have that clinical data, but my recommendation would be get boosted with, with, a, with an mRNA, but I'll give you some caveats. If I'm a young man who got an mRNA, who got J&J because I wanted to just get a one and done and I need a boost, I may want to get a J&J shot because the risk of myocarditis with an mRNA may be higher for me as a man. But if I was a woman, I may not get a J&J because the risk of getting, you know, thrombotic thrombocytopenic, you know, thrombosis with a J&J is higher than with an mRNA. So I may get an mRNA. So this is when the discussion of the booster really needs to happen with your healthcare provider. I don't think we can have a, a one size fits all approach to this. So, so uh, Carlos, I mean, uh, Peter, I'm definitely going to come to you in a second, but Carlos and, and Bonnie to begin with, I know that you're involved in a lot of the national, uh, international, for that matter, discussions about these things. When do you think we'll have a really clear kind of summary of kind of if this, then this, then then this. Um, at this point, it seems to be changing uh, day by day. Yeah, that's a good, let me just explain and then Peter, I know Peter is the font of wisdom here too, but uh, you know, I'm a pediatrician. I We deal with vaccines all the time. There is no perfect vaccine. And I have to tell you that to my view, uh, a vaccine in a bottle provides zero protection. So if you can, and one of my colleagues uh, said years ago, um, are you a glass half empty or a glass half full person? And, and she said, it's how big is the glass? So let's look at the malaria vaccine. That's 30% effective. Is that worthwhile? Absolutely, it's worthwhile. How many lives will you save? So I would say get a vaccine, whatever it is, whatever you feel comfortable with. That should be the first message. The second message is, 
these vaccines are so so safe and effective. Remember, a year and a half ago, we were thinking that we would cut off a vaccine if it was less than 50% efficacious. We're seeing well better than that now. So I think that um, the question is not, again, which vaccine so much as it is, let's make sure everybody feels comfortable getting vaccinated so we can reduce transmission of these viruses. Now, having said that, there are risks, but they are still on the order of handfuls per million to 100,000 to 100, in a particular age group. So I think with Carlos, to Carlos's point, you know, if somebody's concerned about that issue, then they should talk to their provider. We, we need to get that firmed up and, you know, we need WHO, CDC, all of the organizations aligned so that we can just put that message out so people don't get confused and have to shop around. But I think overall, the risk to anybody, um, of no matter what mix and match you get, is going to be extremely low. Super. So, Peter, Super. I hand it off to you. Yeah. So, Peter, uh, take up with that. And, and also, I'd like to have you help us get into a little bit of a thought about uh, the, uh, the, the coincidence of HIV and COVID. Um, this is a, a, an organization that's, that's putting this together, ISUSA, that does a lot of work with, with HIV. And I know that there are a number of questions uh, from the participants. And by the way, um, use the chat function, people that are listening in. Uh, we uh, have heard already from a number of our friends from around the, the world, actually, from Ghana and other places. And one of the things I want to talk about is like some of the international vaccines that aren't available here. But Peter, talk to us a little bit about Bonnie's point and then kind of uh, vamp off into uh, HIV a bit too. Yeah, so um, for me personally, I agree with Bonnie totally, which is, first of all, in terms of messaging, we should be, I think part of the reason why everyone's confused now and nobody's getting boosters, actually the uptake for boosters is extremely lower right now, despite Pfizer being available multiple weeks ago. And that's that's because everyone's a little bit confused, right? Like, should I get half dose Moderna, full dose Moderna? Should I get like Pfizer or J&J? When should I get it? So first of all, I think we have to step back and simplify the message, which is what Bonnie said exactly. We should get a booster. If you're over 65 or immune compromised, run and get it tomorrow or today. Everybody else should get it, but you don't have to run out and get it. Maybe if you're traveling for the holidays, it'll be kind of nice if you're eligible to get it two weeks before you travel, you'll have peace of mind. Right now, all the vaccines still are excellent at, at preventing severe disease, hospitalizations and death. But to Carlos's point, like he, he expressed an evolution in his thinking. And I think we're kind of evolving to like, and I don't know if it's subliminal or, President Biden said it originally and everyone, the scientific community roiled against it. And then slowly and slowly, we seem to be having a wider and wider swath of the community eligible for boosters. So he's kind of coming back to what he originally said, um, which is kind of interesting. But to me, it's simplification. And then the next thing is prioritization. And then, you know, if other people want to get it, that's great. I think at the end of the day, the vaccine will settle to be a three dose series. Everything, so many things we do are prime and boost, two, then multiple months, then boost. And it seems to last much more than six months unless we have a scary new variant. Um, for HIV, um, I think, and Carlos uh, and Bonnie and Paul, uh, met, you know, supplement this uh, as needed. But luckily, we haven't seen the brunt of mortality 
that we ex we, we had feared early on. Um, I think vaccine responses for most people with robust T cells seem to be good. So they kind of fall into the line of what we expect vaccine response to be for um, other vaccines with, with, um, with COVID. And the, the only sort of like interesting sort of HIV slant, and I'll have uh, Carlos and Bunny pick it up would be, I thought it's interesting that the, the, you know, we heard about Merck and Moluprinavir for that first oral agent, which I think is amazing. Like the Pfizer drug is going to be protease inhibitor with ritonavir. So I think that's, that's also kind of interesting. And for me personally, when we think about prevention, the pill is not going to be even close to substituted vaccine, but it will be an interesting um, addition to the, the, the toolbox, um, you know, just as in a, the oral Tamiflu for, uh, for influenza, and this will be the COVID version, nursing outbreak, family outbreak, you just give uh, pills to the people around hopefully prevent uh, hospitalization by 50 oh, So uh, we're already talking about prep for uh, COVID. Is that what you're saying, Carlos? Yeah, prep no, for I don't, COVID. I, yeah. I think the best prep is still a vaccine, but I want, yes. to emphasize, I want to emphasize what Bonnie said is, and I tell this to people all the time, the booster I need is for people that are unvaccinated to get vaccinated. Yes. I mean, that is the most important booster we need. And the reality is we're spending too much time talking about boosters when I'm, my biggest concern is that our number of people who are starting a vaccination program is still is still is flat. It's not going up. And, and that's here. I read today and that there are more people now getting boosters than primary vaccines. Correct. And then but then globally, we have people that that need uh, boosters. And, you know, today, the uh, WHO director, Dr. Tedros, had something in, in social media that I think really strikes me, right? He says over 150,000 healthcare workers globally have died of COVID. And here in the US, we have healthcare workers who are quitting their jobs because they don't wanna be vaccinated. And meanwhile, globally, we have healthcare workers dying to get a vaccine and no, with no access to vaccines. So we also need to think about that. I think getting, the, the, getting everybody globally vaccinated is critically important. I, I applaud India. India passed a billion vaccines October 21st, that's an incredible accomplishment. And I think they there's a lot to be learned from what India has been able to accomplish vaccinating a billion people in such a short period of time. Yeah, so, you know, let me bring up that issue about global. So I agree with you, Peter, HIV, fortunately, we have not seen any uh, significant concerns with people who are treated and under control. Clearly you need to have that, but, but we have not seen any concerns with the HIV population. But I will make a point that we have not seen large cohorts of HIV infected people included in these studies. And that's important to point out. And I don't know how often we have to keep saying this to the companies and we get it, they were in a hurry, but now it's time to really focus and make sure that we don't see any downstream issues around immunity. Um, but the issue of global disease is really important. I've been on the National Vaccine Advisory Committee twice now. I guess I didn't do a good job the first time. Um, and so, uh, but we wrote a white paper in 1999 that said, we need to start diversifying where we produce vaccines. It's not cost-effective for these companies to build big facilities in developing developed settings because vaccines are not money-making devices. You can make more money from one, um, one, a, um, uh, one drug uh, that can be used uh, commonly for people than you can for all the six vaccine manufacturers together in a year. Um, so the profit is not, the profit motive is there, but it's not the driver 
for vaccine companies. So building Serum Institute, at today's New York Times, I don't know if you saw the 10 different sites. I mean, that is what we need to do. We advocated over 15 years ago, 20 years ago now, uh, to start building in Brazil, India, other Indonesia, places that have the technology and the capacity of the workforce to build their own plants. Um, and I think these companies either need to, you know, work around their IP. We, we were subsidizing them to the tune of billions of dollars. So they need to share this with the world. And we now know from last year that two thirds of all the vaccines before anything hit, hit EUA were sold to the EU, the uh, European Union, the US, Japan, um, and none of the develop, developing countries right. have access to vaccines. So yeah. It's critical. The vaccines are, you know, we can protect ourselves, but this is a losing battle if we don't get those vaccines out so, and the infrastructure. So we've made it obviously so much progress in HIV with uh, licensing out uh, the yeah. production of generic drugs. And yeah. it, I, th I agree. I think it's appalling that we haven't, uh, uh, haven't really applied that aggressively uh, with this. And the story today in the New York Times is worth worth people looking at. I'd like to get back to some of the questions that the audience is, is tossing in. Um, and Charles Gonzalez, a, a good friend and a frequent participant in our, our discussions from NYU uh, says, um, are, we, are we facing a situation where we may see kind of waning model or, or, or antibody levels, uh, but yet um, uh, people will, will have enough of, of cellular immune response uh, that that might actually help carry things through. Are we focusing perhaps too much on, on, on the antibody levels itself? They're easy to measure, obviously. So I don't know. Peter, do you want to start with that discussion? And Yeah, can... definitely. I mean, basically the point, the simplistic immunologic view, when you talk to immunologists and they dumb it down for me, is that you can only have so many antibodies in the blood naturally, and they, they naturally decay over time. They're not... The antibodies aren't the only game in town. Of course, there are T cells that this audience knows well. Uh, you don't, we don't measure them or they're not reported often. We know from studies that uh, they hang out in the bone marrow and the lymph nodes. And even if you check stuff in the blood, it doesn't uh, really correlate with actual immunity. And the point is, even with waning immunity by measurable antibodies, it is remarkable that um, most of the vaccines, uh, certainly the mRNA vaccines, despite everything, uh, are keeping people away from the hospital. Whether or not that's going to decay over time comes back to that question of how we normally think about vaccines, which is that prime and boost. And it's like, you know, I don't can't predict the future, but you wonder if it's like, you know, only getting those first two hepatitis B shots in the first month, but not getting the six month shot. And, you know, it's going to protect maybe 75% for the long haul, but maybe the rest of them, uh, folks wouldn't have the long haul protection. So that's one thing. The second thing is, again, coming to immunocompromised individuals. Um, and, you know, I thought about it a lot, and we all did with Colin Powell. Uh, certainly, if you don't have the factories to make antibodies like multiple myeloma and you don't have plasma cells, then you can give all the vaccines you want and it probably won't make much of a dent and that's really discouraging. But again, looking at the future with the AstraZeneca uh, long acting uh, monoclonal antibodies that can last from 12 to 16 months or 18 months, you can imagine giving the Colin Powell's that 
potentially to kind of give them that passive immunity. So those are my some of my thoughts uh, for the current and then maybe for the future. Yeah, no, let's come back to the monoclonal antibodies because I think that's a that's a fascinating kind of issue in, in itself. But and I want to get Paul, back before, to one of the... Go ahead, go, go ahead, Carlos. Sure. Before you go there, I just yeah. want to call people's attention. There was a very nice paper in Science this part past week showing very nicely how mRNA vaccines induce very durable immune memory to, uh, uh, to cellular immune memory to SARS-CoV and variants of concerns that is long lasting. So I think, you know, we, we need to remind ourselves that, that, that memory B and T cells are really important. And again, emphasizing to people that we're, we don't need to be measuring antibodies. And I, I, I want to talk about that because also a lot of people are out there measuring antibodies and then asking, what do I do with this? And yeah, when they call yeah, me, yeah. they don't like my answer, which is, I don't know and don't measure them. <laughs> yeah. So uh, excellent, and and what I wanted to get back eventually, not right now, to the to the issue of, of monoclonals uh, versus vaccines. Why do some people prefer monoclonals and not vaccines? And and uh, it, so let's let's go let's go there, but not quite yet, uh, because one of the uh, one of the participants wonders uh, wants wants us to talk about. Um, this other thing that's been happening for a long time. So one of my good friends, Mike Sag, who all the panelists knows very well, is one of the first people around to, uh, to be infected with this virus, recovered, fortunately. But the issue then is, so what, what then? What, do, what about the people that have recovered? Um, do they need a vaccine? If so, uh, are there any special risks in vaccines? Um, so whichever one wants to yeah, jump let me, in, let me, Bonnie wants to jump, go ahead. Well, let me just, so, you know, we looked at some of those data from last year and it was mostly Chinese data because obviously they got hit first and had a lot of opportunities, unfortunately, to follow this. So we have really conflicting data here and I don't think we have a good sense of this because it's hard to track. So first of all, we do know that A, reinfections definitely occur. We know that they occur early. So within three months, we know if the trend, if there's a lot of, if there's a lot of burden of disease in the community, you're going to see reinfections and they're going to happen early. So that's, so we know that'll happen. And these are healthy people. So, so you can extrapolate that to immunocompromised as well. Number one, on the other hand, if you look at large series, which are, by the way, are very lacking in the literature, the incidence overall, when you look at the population is quite low of reinfections. The problem there of course, is we don't know what the denominators are and people aren't tracking, you know, we're not doing surveillance. So I think the good news here then is that if there are reinfections, they're not clinically significant enough to make a huge dent in, in, in based on these studies, these EHR studies mostly. But we do know from the Chinese data early on that they will happen. So I would think, and I'll be interested to hear what Carlos and Peter think, I think that if you've been infected, I think you need to get vaccinated anyway, because you're clearly eliciting. This is the other thing. There have been studies looking at um, antibody responses and T cell responses, by the way, in people who've been infected then vaccinated versus those who are not infected and vaccinated. Um, and some argue that your response is better, actually, if you get vaccine after you've been infected. So that may be one thing that pushes you in that direction. Uh, I don't think... This is a big concern for us as uh, pediatricians as well because of MISC. We're worried about children getting these huge uh, cytokine responses, but we haven't seen that. We have not seen that pathway um, elicited by vaccination, either in kids who've had MISC, as far as we know, or in children in general, or in adults for that matter. So 
it doesn't look like with current data that giving vaccinations is going to uh, enhance any kind of uh, cytokine um, activation pathways. I thought for a minute after I got my uh, second uh, mRNA that I might have that condition because I felt <laughs> so sick, but it went away very quickly. So uh, no problem. Uh, so, so, you know, Shane Crotty, who's an immunologist at, at, at Scripps, has a, a beautiful paper in science talking about this so-called hybrid immunity. And you can have vaccine-induced immunity, you can have natural immunity. If you've been vaccinated, you have, you know, vaccine-induced, if you've had infected, you got natural. The best immunity of them all is hybrid, when you've been in infected and then get vaccinated. And those, in fact, in, 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 uh, in Nature, a couple of days ago, there was a very nice paper, again, showing how hybrid immunity improves uh, uh, B cell and antibody levels against, against, uh, against COVID. So I tell somebody who's been, who's been infected, if you get a, a, a vaccine, you essentially have, have the best protection of them all. Now, the, the big question is, you know, CDC says you need, you don't, you, I don't care if you have been infected or not, you need to get a full series to be immunized. Europe is a little different. Europe says if you've been infected, one dose of an mRNA vaccine is sufficient to be protected. And that's going to be interesting once we get into this whole idea of who can come into this country, because Europeans are considered fully vaccinated with one dose, while the U.S. does not consider you fully vaccinated. So we also need to to come, come into agreements of what fully vaccinated means and what it doesn't. So, so Carlos, I, I love it. So your, your kind of last couple sentences uh, lead me to the question I've been kind of sitting on for a bit here. Um, this is an international call. We have people, um, uh, as the three of you that are seeing um, people that have global health responsibilities and so what have you seen in terms of the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is not available here, the Chinese, the, uh, the Russian uh, vaccines? Uh, what are you advising um, people that have gotten one of these vaccines that we, we don't have a lot of experience with? Have, have any of you uh, dealt with that? In lots, lots, of lots of questions, lots of questions from friends and colleagues in Latin America, family members. Uh, you know, first of all, AstraZeneca is the, the most commonly used vaccine in, for example, Latin America by far in a way. And it's going to be the com most commonly vaccine used globally. It's a really good vaccine. And you can go back and even see Angela Merkel got her first dose was AstraZeneca and her second dose was Moderna. So even before, you know, mix and match was approved, she was already doing mix and match. The those, Europeans, in the, those in the nude, uh, no, we're going there, yeah. Good. No, the Europeans have been doing, the Spanish have published a really nice paper of doing this. So, so the Europeans have actually been ahead of us doing mix and match, precisely because they don't have the luxury of having the kind of vaccines we have. Uh, you know, when you look at Latin America, uh, and actually globally, the Sputnik vaccine is being used a lot. And, you know, Sputnik is not recognized either by the CDC or the WHO. And a question I get all the time is, look, I got Sputnik. And, you know, come November 8th, I'm not going to be able to enter the U.S. What do I do? And I can't get a booster in my country. I mean, most places don't have enough vaccines to give boosters globally. So I'm telling people, if you have the opportunity, get anything. I mean, get boosted with whatever, you know, yeah. but right. just get another shot. But to get something that will consider you fully vaccinated. Well, because early on when we were having these issues in the in, around the world, um, people were flying into San Francisco airport because it, it had a free vaccine clinic there for anybody. So people were flying in from uh, Philippines, a lot of uh, Pacific Rim countries 
just to get vaccinated and go back home. Um, I, I do think, you know, frankly, in the for the purposes of being aligned, I mean, again, I work with, uh, you know, the EPI, so the pediatric vaccination schedules around the world, they're very well established. Of course, we've had decades to do that. But we need to get to that place where we have, you know, a menu. So obviously, the gold standard is maybe what the US wants to do or the UK or Canada. But that can't be what predicts who can come in and out of your country. I think we need to be a little better about that. Um, and this comes back to the communication issues that we talked about earlier. I think one dose is probably fine for, again, remember, our bar was 50% efficacy, remember? So if you go by that, then just about any, many of these vaccines are pretty reasonable. But uh, given where we were a few months ago, I think people were really afraid to let that happen in the U.S. and to have two standards. So I think we need to make it clear um, that there are just, you know, we, that we can make concessions for people to be able to travel. Um, and the other thing, though, from an implementation standpoint, within your country, you want to make it as simple as possible. So, you know, I, what I don't like is, well, you can use one here for this vaccine or two for, I think it's just, look what happened with the boosters. That was a mess, frankly. And I think, agree with Peter that a lot of that may have been a, you know, a, a messaging issue. Yeah. So, I definitely want to talk about the messaging yeah. and communications. I want to eventually talk about um, kind of who's making the decisions and is there a way to make that process clearer? <laughs> I want to go in a different direction for just a second though, Peter, because, um, and this is something I, we've all been thinking about a lot. So I have sitting here, uh, my, once I get it in focus, <laughs> a, a mask um, and, you know, and San Francisco has been really good. I think the Bay Area in general has been really good about following uh, the rules and masking and, and all the rest. Uh, but are, are we to the point? I mean, you know, we go to big events now and people aren't masking. Is Are we over it? Um, uh, can we really start just getting, uh, uh, you know, in quotes now, back to normal, Peter? Or is, is, is the time for masking over? No, I mean, I think the hopefully culturally we'll stick with masking whenever we feel the need to. I mean, there's influenza, there are other things. Um, I think specifically now, globally, I think we are moving in the right direction. The Bay Area, of course, being a little bit different from others. I always like to compare the Bay Area or California to Florida because we're kind of at the same destination right now. We're both kind of like orange slash yellow in that not substantial transmission zone. But well, we got very different ways of getting there over the summer with Delta. So look at these chilling statistics. Um, vaccination rate, very similar. Uh, California, 83% on average. Um, Florida, 77%. Um, those uh, and overall about. And then when you look at the number of, of deaths per 100,000, though, um, All right. 70 per 100,000 in Florida. 12 per 100,000 in California and less than one per 100,000 in San Francisco for the summer and Delta surge. So it's the Swedish model all over again. You can get to the same place, but a lot of bodies are going to fall in the meantime. So coming back to masking, yes, masking can, can do that and, and political will and all of that. And right now, I think it's the train has already left the station, but if you're immunocompromised again and you're in a crowded place, or even myself, you know, if you're in Russia or Costco on Saturday, I mean, 
I probably would feel nervous without wearing my mask as long as they're circulating virus because we're not down to that low level yet. If you have vac unvaccinated kids at home under age 12, you want to wear it for two reasons. You might want to wear it to protect them, but also you'd want to wear it to model the mask wearing uh, for the kids. And so those are my perspectives. Uh, masks have been so politicized. Coming back to your original point about the same people who don't like vaccines, they're running after monoclonal antibodies and 75% of the monoclonal antibodies are going to five states and then we are having shortages, but it's the same immunity. So it's just really weird. I mean, different how you get there, but you're still antibodies floating around. So it's always really puzzling to me. And that's where you introduce politics into science. And it, I think as healthcare professionals and, and as scientists, it, it sends our brain into like, what you know, haywire because it just doesn't make sense. So here's where we are. Honestly, we are in the new normal, whether we like it or not, this is it. Okay, we have an annual pandemic before COVID that kills 60 to 100,000 people every single year for which we have a vaccine, which isn't great. And we never mask and most people don't take the vaccine and it's the flu, right? So we already live in that era. The question is, are we gonna do something different about this? Now, um, the risks that are different here are that even though the highest risk group we know are older than 65 or people with underlying conditions, there are a lot of people with underlying conditions. And the question is for the under 65, are you willing to take that risk that you're going to be the one that winds up in the ICU? So in general, this whole pandemic from the beginning has been about risk perception, always. Now the risk is better now because people took it seriously and got vaccinated. But the question about masks, there's no question, no question that masks work with or without vaccines, but they're better with vaccines. So why not do that? Now, the reason we uh, do it is a cultural issue. Remember what happened in the Asian countries after SARS, they became a mass, mass cultures because they saw the direct effects of SARS. We did not and didn't do that. So I think it's a cultural shift that, uh, you know, as Peter said, who knows? I think we're living in the new normal. The question is how are, and we're all going to do it differently. I think in California, we're going to mask and we're going to uh, keep vaccinating and other places. I mean, I was just in Texas. You, you, you can imagine you know, what it was like there. Bonnie, I, I yeah. think you're right. But I also would say that I'm a little more pessimistic because during the 1918 flu pandemic, we also had face mask wars in this country and we didn't oh, yeah. change back then. So I'm, I think you're going to have the people like us who are going to mask and you're going to have the Texas and the Floridas that are not going to mask. And, and that's going to be, you know, the, the reality. You're going to have two different populations. Look at the fights in schools for about masks in many states. Right. So uh, I, I do want to say, though, however, Peter, what I hear what you said about Florida, I think we need to remind ourselves that that the biggest predictor of bad outcomes in COVID, even if you're vaccinated, it's age. And uh, and, you know, I, I'm sure you probably saw it was a New York Times article, you know, uh, what's her name? Uh, Emily Oster says that an unvaccinated child is, 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 at less, is at lower risk of serious illness than a vaccinated 70-year-old. And I think we need to remind ourselves that for older individuals, even in vaccinated, they still have risk and they still can end up in the hospital and end up very sick. And one of the reasons that why we want to vaccinate everybody, even though your risk is not there, when kids, people frequently say to me, I don't want to vaccinate my kids. They have no risk of dying. I said, yeah, but you want to protect your elderly. You want to protect the older people that are around them. 
And that concept is really important. If you're going to go visit grandma and grandpa over the, the holidays, get all the kids vaccinated. The kids may not die, but even vaccinated grandma and grandpa may end up in the ICU if they get COVID. Yeah. Let me let do. me add something to that though, because uh, again, remember what we do for what I do for a living, and I I kids die from this disease. And there's no question. We have a kid in the ICU right now that's struggling on ECMO. So I, I the risk is clearly low. I, I absolutely agree with you, and I mentioned this. The risk is highest in the 65 and older. But kids in children under 18, COVID is the in the top 10 causes of death. Now the numbers are small, but children aren't supposed to die. And no, I, I, so I no, I'm just. No, no, the reason I bring it up again, coming back to messaging, is when we message that people then say, well, I'm not going to vaccinate my kid just to protect somebody's older, you know, grandfather. That is an important reason. It's not the only reason. Yeah, correct. So I, I, let, me, let me just toss in. I think, if, you know, if we had all the time in the world, we could also talk about HPV vaccination in kids. Oh, my and, gosh. Yeah. Uh, and do people go there? Uh, Carlos, I, I want to... Uh, ask you a question and I'm, I'm sure everyone's gonna gonna have thoughts so here we have these big policies people are really watching this right we're all watching it um and and yet you have kind of messaging coming from the cdc from the um uh, the uh, immunization panel from the white house itself from specialty societies um and who is really coordinating the, the message? And are we getting to the point where people appreciate that the messaging has been such a disaster that people are actually gonna to come to the same page? Can you comment on, on efforts to kind of rationalize uh, the, the message that people are hearing? Well, you know, it's, it's been complicated and I think we have two different issues. Number one, I think is, is you need to have one messenger and, and there should be one messenger. And I'm I, you know, kind of surprised that we still, you know, even though we have Tony Fauci and Rochelle Walensky and the Surgeon General, we really don't have a, a, a COVID SAR, you know, somebody who's in charge of doing the communication and doing the, the one and only message. So you still have Tony saying a few things and, and Rochelle saying a little bit different and, and, and you know, Vivek saying something different. And that, even though they're all kind of aligned, there's, there's a little bit of nuisance of difference in the message that I think creates confusion. You add to that the misinformation out there, and then you're really in trouble. But I think what we have, our biggest problem here in, in our country is that public health is not federal, right? It's a state issue. So the biggest problem you have is the governor of California or New York may have one message. The governor of Florida and, and Georgia may have a different message. And, you know, it really depends if that really is what's, I mean, look at what's happening right now in Florida, where you have, you know, a surgeon general who's out there telling people that vaccines don't work. And he's actually actively working with legislators to prevent vaccine mandates, not only for COVID, but for other infectious diseases. I mean, I really think the damage to public health, to me, is the biggest, you know, sort of the biggest victim out of this pandemic may be the irreparable damage we, we produce to public health in our country in some states. Yeah, so, you know, coming back to that, I, I, I really agree with Car what everything Carlos said. I don't think this is about COVID. I think there's a lot of mistrust. Um, I, I think there are two issues. One is we had a failure of governance. And the second is we have a real mistrust in our leadership and in science and facts and even in, you know, who you're going to listen to for your for your basic you know 
survival uh, messaging. And unless we can address that separately, that's a whole separate topic. I don't think people will listen. I mean, I think the messaging was reasonably good. Uh, it could have been better for sure. Um, I do think public health clearly, clearly, we've been talking about this for 30 years now, is underfunded, it's rickety, it needs to be reinforced. Um, those are all issues that we need to deal with. But, but the fundamental problem here is what Carla said, that people are not gonna listen to a message that they don't feel is branded for them. And, I, and that is a fundamental mistrust in who's giving out the, who's giving out the messages. Now, so now we'll the, come fact back. That, the fact that this was the first pandemic of social media also was complicated because also what people are seeing is we all, you know, with preprints and everything else, people are seeing the, the sausage being made, right? Science is, is really yeah. complicated. So one day I'll tell you something and the next day I'll tell you something different, but that's how the sausage is made. And people also out there, if you talk to people, they think science is absolute. We know the answers from day one. And the fact that they're seeing the sausage made, I think has actually decreased the trust in science, even yeah. from people that, that actually trusted science. Yeah, I, I, I think the most, the, the most obvious example of that to me was, you know, at one point early in the epidemic, uh, Tony Fauci, who we all totally respect, obviously, said he didn't think masking was necessary. Later, he said it was, and, and people jumped on that and said, therefore, you know, he changed his line and um and and we we shouldn't trust him because he changed his 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 message and and obviously you know i'm speaking to the choir here but we know from the hiv experience that you have to be able to change uh as as data uh changes and i think we we're not doing yet a very good job of explaining that to the to the general public if if i you know i i think that maybe the most important communication messages I'm not going to tell you the truth. I'm going to tell you what I think right now, based on the evidence that we have. As the evidence changes, I have to change what I'm saying. But, but more importantly, I also need to tell you what I don't know. Yeah, and I yeah. think that's that's where we also have failed. Saying, look, this is what we know, but this are all the things we yet to know, and yeah. we, we have doubts about. And I think we we really need to. One thing that I think this pandemic also needs to teach us about communication is humility. We have to be able to say, this is what I don't know, and we have to also say we were wrong. Yeah. So um, the audience has uh, some stuff to weigh in here, comparing what we're going uh, through to the, you know, the OxyContin uh, story and the distrust of, of big pharma um, as well. And you know, maybe our, in our next program we can we can tackle that, which is a huge, important uh, part of the part of the issue. Peter, a really practical question that uh, that the audience has asked. Um, Talk about kind of who's paying for the for the vaccine and the boosters, and will ADAP? Uh, what is what is their role? Especially going back to the HIV population now, is is there any concern about uh, paying for the boosters? Yeah, I mean, right now it's still covered under Operation War Spin, and they've been pre-purchased. But at some point, the dust will be settled. Everybody will be FDA approved. Some people will get covered, insurance will cover others, and there'll be kind of a playing field. And that's where the pros and cons of each vaccine will come out. So it'll be interesting to see. And I, I love, Bonnie, particularly to Wayne on, on the, the funding piece. But I think one other part that we story that I've heard over and over again is that people in vulnerable communities, and this is where the messaging came through again, uh, were afraid that they would be charged for co-pays or co-visits. And that was like, 
it continues to still be a barrier. Even the other day, I was, uh, you know, before I eventually got my booster from UCSF, but I was trying to get it from Walgreens. And they ask you all your in insurance information as part of setting up that visit. And if I didn't know any better, I would think they would be trying to, that I needed insurance to get the vaccine. So even today, right now, with all that messaging, it's still very unclear. Well, Peter, social security number, it has been an impediment for many undocumented immigrants that they're concerned that if they get the vaccine, yeah, yeah. they will be deported, they will not be able to apply yeah. for citizenship. So, you know, I think this brings up an issue of equity and we really, you know, so working, I mean, I worked with ACIP well before we even knew what COVID was. And I have to tell you that we struggle quite a bit and we have to bring it to the table whenever these organizations make their recommendations, they're doing it in the public health interest, but we need to advocate for equity. So let me give you a good example. The pneumococcal vaccine for adults, we just went back to recommend 15, PCV 15 and 20 to adults. It's a little complicated, but the point is, that a few years ago, they stopped recommending pneumococcal vaccines, certain vaccines to adults over 65 because vaccinating the kids was reducing circulation of those serotypes. But the problem with that is that, you know, these vaccines work at a societal level. There's no increase in benefit. However, you're creating an inequity because people who can afford to pay for that vaccine are going to get, get it. it. Yeah. So we need to be careful that we don't do the same thing for COVID because there are so many inequities already inherent in this pandemic. And I absolutely agree that there are people now, they're starting to try to get reimbursed, but people were being charged for their visits for the vaccine. So that is a concern. And then once it happens, it's hard to reverse that feeling of mistrust. So I'm starting to keep track of the questions that we want to come back to in our next uh, in our next panel. We're, we're down to the last uh, couple minutes. I knew it was going to go fast, and I knew that uh, everyone loves to share. The, you know, it's been a spectacular discussion, and um, uh, and and we do hope to come back. Uh, quick practical thing: uh, somebody's gotten an AstraZeneca. Um, uh, is there, do we know enough about the time lag from that to when the booster should be, uh, should be, uh, recommended for those people that we're going to come see from Latin America? Carlos, why don't you, uh, handle that? Yeah. You know, there's, there's, there's a couple of papers suggesting that the, the, the loss of, 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 of protection, especially against Delta, again, as Bonnie said, we don't know how long is waning immunity, how much is Delta, but it's very similar to Pfizer. And the recommendation is you probably should get a booster. And if you got AstraZeneca, you know, again, you can come to the you come to the U.S. You can get a J and J, and that should be enough. You can get a Pfizer, you can get a Moderna. It really doesn't matter. Again, I think what we're learning also our immune system recognizes the antigen, not the brand. And I remind <laughs> this to people. I I never had anybody say to me before, well, you know, I'm going to get my flu shot, but I'd rather yes. take the Sanofi than the GSK. It's you know? <laughs> so right, that. Carlos. You're so right. This, yeah, this exactly. whole idea that now we're talking about vaccines by brand name just drives me crazy. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting. I can't wait for the ads on uh, on the you know the television. You know, get, get my vaccine. Um, so one person uh, would like to make sure that we post the articles mentioned by the speaker. So uh, I, I, I I did. I put them there, but I can put them in so, the chat. So go ahead and 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 by the way, send them in to ISUSA, and we can make sure that we. Yeah. Uh, post them and circulate them to the people. We've had uh, over 220 people participating in this uh, in this panel. Um, I, I think it's remarkable, given that it's even even on the West Coast, kind of late on a Friday afternoon. Um, 
and and by the way, we're getting some of the much needed rain up here in the in the north part of the state, state at least. Um, I think we can have to close it, but uh, but there are obviously a lot of a, a lot of important questions, and I I really want to thank. I think before I thank the panelists, I thank the the audience for for joining us for this. If you have thoughts, if you have questions, uh, knowing that we're going to try to grab these uh, these illustrious people uh, again. Um, at some point, uh, maybe a little not so late in the afternoon, um, but uh, but do send in your in your questions. We we definitely like to like to hear your uh, your feedback. So I will close by, and 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 the, uh, someone asked, will it, will it be posted? I think we're gonna. I think we're recording this and we'll post it. I'll check that to be to make sure. Um, but uh, really, thank you very much. Uh, appreciate your your participation. Thanks. You're a wonderful moderator as always. Uh, Thank you so much. Yeah, I love it. The cat helped me a lot. Paul, thanks a lot. Okay, bye-bye. Care, everybody.